Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. Matthew Harfey is the author of the Bernicia Chronicles, which follows the warrior Beobrand through his action-packed adventures in 7th century Northumbria. Our colleague Craig Huttert put some questions to Matthew about his new book, For Lord and Land, and how he incorporates historical and archaeological research into his writing process. So I thought we'd just dive straight into it. Okay. Um, you're originally from Northumberland. Ah, well, that's kind of what the bio says. But you might detect from my accent that I'm actually not originally from Northumberland. I didn't want to say anything. Obviously. So <laughs> I've, I've perfected this southern accent over the years. No, I actually I'm, I did live in Northumberland as a child. So it's not a lie in my bio to say that I grew up in Northumberland, but only partially. So I was born in West Sussex and right down on the coast in Sussex. And my parents moved up to uh, Northumberland. I lived in a little village called Norham on the Tweed, which you may, if you've read the books, know as Ubenford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes, yeah, so near Berwick-on-Tweed. I went to school in Berwick-on-Tweed um, and I was there for just a few years. And then after that, we moved to Spain. So I'm orig- and now in Wiltshire. So I've been all over the place. But yeah, originally from the south. Oh, no. And well, just going to say, I, I was only years after writing the... Um, the Serpent Sword, and thinking about it, and about the character of Beobrand, actually goes up to Northumberland, um, or Northumbria, as it is at the time, or Benicia, um, and he goes up, and um, then you know he becomes a, a warrior and defeats all of his enemies up there. And I'm thinking back to my own childhood when I went up there, as I think I was nine or something when we went up there, and obviously a southerner with a southern accent, and I used to get terribly bullied at school and beaten up. We should get off the school bus and chased across the green in Norham and getting beaten up by the local kids. And, and very quickly I adapted and spoke with a very broad accent that my parents couldn't understand when I was living there to, 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 to fit in. But I'm thinking, I wonder how much of that was me just projecting that bear around into having to right the wrongs of my youth so that he can go and just beat up all the people. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? But yeah, I a concept for a book. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't, it didn't cotton on to that sort of autobiographical part of it until years later. So how do, you, how do you compare the two? Obviously, they are almost opposite ends of the country. I don't want you to say which one you prefer, because um, but how would you compare the two, not just historically, but kind of landscape-wise as well? Well, if I, if I have to choose where to live, either place, I would definitely say Northumberland. I would definitely prefer to live in the northeast than the southeast. Uh, that's nowadays. I'm not so sure. Maybe in the past, but definitely, definitely now. I I think the countryside is more rugged, and obviously it's less populated as yeah. well, which uh, appeals to me. So I think it's much easier to put to imagine what it was like in the past. So in the time of my books, and books are set in the seventh century. The Venetian Chronicles are set in the seventh century, and I think it's much easier for me to imagine what the world was like in the seventh century, walking around the coastline or the Cheviots in in Northumberland, than it is walking across the Downs in the south. Um, so now, yeah, I live in Wiltshire now, and I go walking with my dog in the countryside, and I do try to use those experiences to extrapolate into the past, but 
there's not many times that we don't bump into lots of people and you can hear cars in the distance and there's things going on around about. So, um, yeah, I prefer the, the sort of more rugged, less less populated. Northumberland, it's just, you, you can walk for miles and just not see anyone. Yeah. And you can imagine, like you say, it being as it is now, as it was then, because exactly. it hasn't changed. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's, it's, it's then just trying to work out from historical records and, and, and archaeology and whatever whether you know whether there were the same number of trees whether there's you know what what types of trees there were those sort of things but but really i think the landscape apart from possibly a few tree different trees being around or not being around it was very similar you know, to what it is now your books are obviously based in anglo-saxon england mostly northumberland why why did you pick that period in time and why why northumberland obviously you've explained about almost like a homecoming and being cathartic almost. Absolutely, yeah. And and, it, and my original choice of writing about that, it would, well, I'd, I'd always written little bits and pieces and um, often started what I thought would be a novel, but ended up being about three pages. It was always like you write, write the first three or four pages of a, of a story. Um, it's very easy. It's very easy just to start writing. It's very, very difficult. I found it at least, and I think it's probably the most difficult thing is to finish a novel. I think to start a novel is, you know, anyone can do that. It's actually finishing it. But there was, so there was one, so it wasn't too much of a surprise that in 2001, I started to write something. And that was The Serpent Sword, which is the first of the Benicia Chronicles, which, but the, the, the thing that triggered that moment of me wanting to, to write um, that particular story was um, I watched um, a documentary. I think it was, oh, what was it called? Meet the Ancestors, I think it was. So it was all about this particular episode talked about Bamburgh Castle and the bones that had been found in the dunes or in burial ground near the dunes of Bamburgh Castle um, and talked about this period, um, this golden age of Northumberland when Northumbria was one of the most important um, countries in or kingdoms in in Europe, and um, I'd never heard of Benicia, and I didn't know that Bamburgh Castle. I'd been to Bamburgh Castle before. I'd been to you know all, all that coastline. I'd been to Lindisfarne and um, Craster and Dunstanborough Castle. I loved all that that area, but I I'd, I'd never heard of Benicia, and it was not something that was taught at school. I didn't know that Bamburgh Castle was the seat of the kings of Northumbria at the time, and so I just something about that program just inspired me. I think maybe I was a bit homesick. I just moved from Spain back to the UK, so we'd only been living here in Wiltshire for a, a few months, and, may, and it was I think it was October because I remember then later on looking back and realizing that I started writing on the anniversary, I think, of the Battle of Hatfield Chase, which was bizarre because that appears right at the beginning of the books in six thirty three or six thirty four, depending on who you read. Yeah, I, I just saw this program. I was inspired, and I went off, and I think it was that sort of combination of thinking. I want to write something. I've always been into fantasy and swords and sorcery and that sort of stuff. So the action, adventure, historical fiction kind of mode made sense to me. Um, and this link to the past and a place that I'd lived in before and I'd been visited. I think all those things just sort of came together. Yeah, and I just started writing and that was it. And I, I didn't know anything about the period. And I'd never written a novel before. And over the next few years, I just started researching more and more and... Um, ended up writing the, the Serpent Sword, took a long time, but um, eventually got there. But incidentally, I mean, people listening, if they're into historical fiction set in Anglo-Saxon Britain and the Vikings and that sort of period, mine's before the Vikings, but that sort of time frame, they will probably have heard of The Last Kingdom and Bernard Cornwell's series of books. The first book um, was called The Last Kingdom. His book actually came out, I think it was 2003, 
So it came out after I'd started writing, but it took me a long time to, to finish. And I actually put the books away for seven years after I didn't write. After that, I was so disappointed because his book was set in the started at Bamburgh Castle. Yeah. Um, and it was very similar. There was lots of different time periods. So it was a couple of hundred years later, but very similar. Lots, And I always get compared to him now because he's incredibly successful and fantastic. And his books are great. Um, so I'm not saying that I don't like his books or anything. I really do. And in a, a roundabout way, I was inspired by him because... I think part of my inspiration to start writing was because I'd read his his Arthurian books that he wrote in the in the nineteen nineties, and they're set in a sort of realistic setting of early medieval dark ages, and so so in a roundabout way he'd inspired me to to start writing, and then he wrote something that was very similar to what I was then writing, which kind of put me off writing until years later I decided, hang it, I've got to write it, so I did. So I'm glad he didn't put you off because I think as we've discussed previously. Uh, I'm a big fan of your books. Oh, so thank you. I'm glad you picked them back up. Yes, start. so am I. So, am I <laughs> so have you always been into history? And I don't just mean just watching documentaries, but I mean going to visit places or wanting to learn more. And did you study history to any level? Yes, I've always been into history. I think I've always enjoyed visiting places. Like I said I've been to Bamber Castle before, lived in, in Norham as a, as a child. There was a ruined castle there in Norham on the hill, and I... I and I think my parents probably instilled a lot of this in me, taking me to places. So when we lived in Spain, um, we would go and visit Toledo, uh, the Alhambra in Granada, and go and we, whenever we would go places, we would visit the historical sites. And I think I'd always been interested very much in visiting places. But in terms of studying history, I've never studied it to uh, to any great degree. In fact, one of my dark secrets is I did study it at O level. That shows my age. So that's GCSE for um, for anyone younger. But I failed. Uh, I failed at O level, so I didn't. I have no qualification in history <laughs> at all. But um, I'm going to blame that on the teacher <laughs> and on the curriculum. No, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to blame it more on the curriculum than the teacher and the fact that I was 15 or 16 and I just didn't want to study. I was a terrible student as a child, so I was interested in history. But I think what they teach at school. And probably it's the same now, but definitely when I was growing up and going through school, I think it was just boring. I just didn't, I just wasn't interested. They didn't teach every part of history. As I mentioned before, they never taught things about, you know, Benicia and the Anglo-Saxons and stuff. I never learned any of that stuff at school. Maybe they do now, I don't think. I think they just pick on, you know, they've got a bit about the Vikings and a bit about the Tudors. And then you're into probably the Second World War. You know, it's like the First World War or the Second World War. You hit on these big moments, but they sort of gloss over everything else. And They do. It's a, it's a very... Um prescribed way of teaching and I think it does turn a lot of kids off and adults actually into learning more about history when you kind of you think about all the bits they actually miss out at the formative years of what formed this country they miss out the important bits of our history and it does yeah I mean I, I didn't particularly enjoy studying history at school although I do have a big love for history yeah. and I could have done a lot better but it was it just didn't inspire me at all and it wasn't until I got to university and started delving into things a bit more I think that I actually thought actually do you know what history is a bit deeper than You've been yeah. taught at school. Well, I think the history that, that, I, that, that I was being taught at school was often about the politics. It's, it's yeah. a lot about the big picture politics. And to be honest, it's not what most interests me about history. So, I mean, in my books, the main character, Bearbrand, and the others do mix with the kings and the queens and the bishops and, you know, the people that are involved in that big picture history. And the, the main character is himself involved in battles and things and intrigues. But it's not the politics and the intrigues and how things get done 
at that level is not what really inspires me. I think it's much more the individual actions and the individual interactions between people and the characters that that, that inspire me and interest me more. So I just think it's the, the history that's been taught is just not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the sort of the living history of how people lived and how they did things and how so I suppose much more what you're taught at primary school, you know, how 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 the people would actually live, how they made pots or how they would start a fire or those sort of things. The physical, interesting, nitty gritty of life, I find that much more interesting than and then a treaty was signed between the the, you know, the Bavarian kings and the, you know whatever. It's like I don't I don't I just couldn't put any of that into into a framework that made sense to me. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's the same with modern politics as well. I find modern politics difficult to comprehend because it's it's a very complicated topic. And I think one of the things that you you just touched upon is that history and archaeology. A lot of people find the subject matter very very dry. Yeah. Um, and the engagement levels are quite low, especially with younger people. And at the moment in archaeology, there's a massive skills gap. You've got archaeology departments shutting down. Uh, Sheffield uh, lost their department uh, last week. So when you're writing your books, you're obviously, you've done a lot of research. And I think you kind of bring, you bring it to life that interests people. And I almost think it's a good way to engage, not just with younger people, but with everyone across, you know, across society. Archaeology is seen as very elite. Um, it's also seen as quite musty, I think, is a, yeah. is a fair way to put it. So I think as a, as a topic, as a subject, if you lump it in history and archaeology together, we need to find new ways to engage. And someone like yourself, who has just admitted that you failed your O-level GCSE yeah. Yeah. in history, is now a best-selling historical author. There's something. There's definitely something to be said for what happens so this is you know any young people listening you know do study and i did later on go and get a degree in computing so yeah, yeah. but so so do but do study and, and complete your studies and do the best you can but but don't feel that you're limited to what happens at school you know when you come out of school if you failed everything don't think that's the end sound like i talk to my kids now but this is this is it's the truth right so i look at it and i think i was no i, I left school i didn't have any i didn't go straight into university i went to work and in the end i studied with the open university um, and i was 27 i started doing a degree in computing mm -hmm. and and i finished that worked in it for years and now i'm working full-time as a, as a historical novelist so you know you don't know where you're going to end up so no and <laughs> when you're 16 you think your life's over if you failed your gcse's but i think you know you're you're living proof that it's it's not is it it's, that's right and you're never too old to get into history, archaeology. But talking about the dryness of archaeology, and you know, I, I keep sort of lumping history with archaeology, because I guess when I'm studying, um, when I'm researching a book, there's no, you know, the, the crossover. I, I, don't, I don't delineate the two things. I'm not looking at, now I'm going to look at archaeological evidence, and now I'm going to look at historical evidence. Now I'm going to look at first-hand accounts or whatever. I'm just, I'm just researching. So whatever pops up, I'll read and, and look at and, and move on. But... Um, the fact that archaeology is a very specific science with with its own trying to think methodologies and things around it, perhaps that makes it quite dry. And I, I think the fact that I keep bundling the things together with history and archaeology all in one, mm. um, I suppose, is reflective of the fact that as a consumer of the information that archaeologists have brought out of the ground and from elsewhere and, and compiled, as a consumer of that. I'm, I don't care which specific, uh, I'm 
trying to think of the right words here. This is difficult to think of the right word, but the specific um, type of histo historical research that I'm pulling on is it, you know, first-hand account? Is it um, archaeology? The fact that archaeology for you, when you're doing your job, is you said can be perceived as quite dry. Is that because it's very prescribed and very specific, and it's just one thing, and maybe doesn't always take into account all the other things that are around it? That's what I'm trying to get at in a long hand. Long as, as professional archaeologists, the way we are pushed to kind of display information, it's a very technical description, and people either feel alienated by that. I guess that's what I was saying. Is it's yeah. the technicality. It's very technical. It's got its own methodology, you know, technical yeah. ways of, of showing information. And I think, unfortunately, what that does is it, it keeps that knowledge within a certain group. Yes, that's it. So it's hard. To, it's, it makes it more difficult to digest, right? So. What was, I, I guess what we're saying is that in historical fiction, I'm, I'm almost acting as a filter and a way of digesting history, first-hand account information, um, writings by the venerable Bede or whatever, and archaeological evidence all bundled together and come through me as a filter. And I put it into some entertaining, hopefully entertaining format that somebody can get hold of. And there'll be snippets of information that come from all those different fields. But I've lost all the technicality. I've lost all the technical side of things. Yeah, and, I, and when I'm doing research, I think the, it is the archaeological stuff that often they're the, the papers that I'm, I skim mm -hmm. over most. And I might just be looking for the diagrams and just for the, a little bit of the detail. This is being completely honest, you know, yeah. so you try because it, the, the, the writing is often very dry. And maybe the information, as you say, is very technical. And all I'm interested in really is how long was the ship they found? You know, what material was it made of? And maybe lots of the other information that's there isn't that important to me as a, as a writer. That is, it's quite an important thing that you just said, because I've got children and I, I have to try and engage them in what I do. And that's my career. I have to think of new ways to make it interesting to them. And something like your book almost provides, your book, sorry, almost provides a soft way into history and archaeology, don't they? As in, it opens a door and they can follow that interest on. Yeah, I think so. As long as people don't believe that my books are historically accurate, because I have this thing. I think I tried to make them as historically accurate as possible. But one of the things that I, I find interesting is that um, people sometimes imply that they've learned real history from reading my books, or those of Bernard Coleman or other historical um, novelists, where I think in reality, I speak for myself, I'm just trying to tell an entertaining story based in a real world but i'm absolutely sure that the events that i portray didn't happen as i portray them i'm i am spinning events to make it an exciting story so i'll know there's a battle as i mentioned before hatfield chase i know there's a battle between two people two kings and two kingdoms and that um, edwin of Northum northumbria lost and that pender with cadwallon of gwyneth um, won that battle in 633 but that's all i know and then everything else that I tell around that story, it might take you know a hundred pages in a book, is all made up. I mean, literally made up. Um, so I think it is a gateway for people to then think, okay, so there was a battle of Hatfield Chase. Now I'm going to go and look at it, but there's very little information about it. So I mean, part of the, the the joy of writing in early medieval period is that I can I have that freedom mm -hmm. to make things up a lot more. If I was writing about the Tudors or much later in history, there's so much known, so much written that it becomes very difficult. I think what it does is that. It humanises that, that topic, even if it is 100% made up. It makes you think, actually, do you know what? They are they are us, what, 1,400 years ago. And I think that's a really important thing that people, if once they get their head around that fact, I think archaeology can become a lot more interesting. It's not just a, a technical drawing in a book, or it's not just a technical description in a book. You suddenly think, oh, actually, 
a person was holding that handle or a person was touching that thing. Yeah. So, and I mean, one of the things that I do in the books as well is I, I think about, you know, we're talking about 1400 years ago, the people would be much more in close contact with nature. Their lives would be dictated by the weather, by the climate, by uh, the seasons. Um, and so uh, I've got, you know, I've got books on my shelf about, um, about natural history and about bushcraft as well. And lots of the stuff that um, I'll mention will be about how people deal with the environment and, and the elements based on the way that indigenous people nowadays, or perhaps even archaeological evidence for people from beforehand, from, from Neolithic times, would have dealt with, with the environment. And I'll be able to extrapolate that into the period that I'm writing about. So if evidence for how they, they cooked food or, or lit fires, there might be nothing that's specifically from that period, but I'm able to extrapolate it from other places in the world or, or even other time frames and push it into that time period. Um, and I think that also is that is part of that humanizing and, and, and showing that everybody, no matter where we're from or where we live or what time we live in, we're all people and we all have the same or similar foibles and make the same sort of mistakes and, and do things in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And we all have to survive in the same way. So everybody's got to feed their children and put a roof over their heads. Um, and clothe, you know, and, and rack up warm when it's when it's cold, and light a fire to to cook. Probably the only difference is, is you know, fourteen hundred years ago, your crop failed, your family probably died. Well, that's Whereas it. Yeah. Now, yeah, there's all sorts of help, but at, at the same time, you do have to you do have to think that maybe it was a more brutal time, as in, was life less valuable, or was it not? Well, I think to the individual, obviously, life wasn't less valuable. Because we all live our own individual lives, right? So we're all, you know, we all want to survive and you want your children to survive. But I think on a, on a, on a wider scale, I'm sure life was less valuable. Mm. So I'm sure that, um, you know, when I, I think people are probably much more philosophical about, about the death um, of, of children and, and relatives and you know, people they knew from disease and illness because it, it, it happens so much more frequently. And so you'd have to become more sanguine about it because it would happen so so often you could I, I can't imagine everybody was walking around crying all the time and i think if you uh, but i obviously i think you know parents grieved the death of their children and you know and, and children grieved the death of their, of, their, of their parents in the same way they do now but i don't think maybe that grief was different than it is today maybe it doesn't didn't last as long i mean it's interesting one of the things that i find in the book is that i um and, and this is something modern writers struggle with is that i probably make my main characters too 21st century they, they're they too touchy-feely and they're thinking too much about their emotions and and being upset about things so people have complained that bear brand is is a bit too in in touch with with his emotions and and, and he, he thinks too much about the people that he's lost and things that was a conscious decision my first draft he was almost like an automaton because i decided that a seventh century warrior wouldn't really worry about death and people dying and he wouldn't think about those things and he probably didn't they probably didn't that much yeah. but my wife read the very first draft and said he's got no in- internal monologue there's nothing going on so it becomes boring you, you need to latch onto them mm-hmm. you need to latch onto the, the emotions of the character and so i actually took a conscious decision not to make him a 21st century person but to give him some sensibilities that perhaps a hardened warrior wouldn't have because I think it allows readers to to connect more. Um, he wasn't raised as a warrior. He wasn't raised as a warrior, but so he, maybe is, he does have those. But he is quite he's quite soft in that he, he thinks a lot about things. He's almost like a philosophical warrior. And he'll always question. He's he's a, he's a bit of a dichotomy, and that he's got uh, he's he's prone to 
extreme acts of or acts of extreme violence um, when when needed to. And he's he's a, a natural born warrior, so he's 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 like a you know natural athlete, a natural fighter. He's very good at throwing himself into combat into battle, and he'll kill indiscriminately when needed to. But at the same time, he never kills without thinking about the consequences afterwards. He always questions himself afterwards, and if he thinks you know, that he's, he's killed or hurt someone that he shouldn't have. He's always, he always, he's cut up about it afterwards. So I think that's probably the element that I added um, that gives him extra depth, but um, but maybe it's not, probably, maybe isn't realistic of the people of the time, but who knows? Because there, there aren't first-hand accounts written from the perspective of warriors at the time, because they were illiterate by and large, and so they didn't write down, and even if they did write down accounts, they would have just said, had a battle today and we won, thank praise be to God. You know, that would be it. Yeah. There wouldn't be more. Those accounts were very, very biased, weren't they? They, yeah. were, they were told from the victor's standpoint yeah. quite a lot of the times. So you don't talk, you don't hear about grief of loss and yeah. stuff like that, which kind of leads into the next, the next question that I had, and it was about it was about the, the research that you do for these for the for your books. Um, I know we've touched upon the research that you do, but do you have to consult archives and texts? frequently or is it now more of a build-up knowledge that you draw on that's interesting so i think i did a lot more of background reading in the early books at the moment i'm writing a, the sequel to a time for swords which is a new series which is based at the dawn of the viking age so i'm finding i'm having to research more again naively i thought that by only being a couple of hundred years later it would be like the same <laughs> but then I started writing and thinking, what was I thinking? Yeah. It's like everything's different. All the kings are different. Everyone's different. All the people are different. The technology is different. The, the, everything's different. The politics is completely Every, different. The politics completely different. The religions are different. I'm just thinking, oh my God, what have I done? So, I, I, I've, yeah, so I've, I've created a, a, that sort of pain for myself. When I'm writing the Benicia Chronicles, I don't need to sort of do background reading. But what I do is I read, because it's sort of chronologically going through the years, I've got a vague idea of where Beobrand's going and I'll read the next sort of few years of account or accounts for the next few years of what's happening. Uh, sometimes it, it comes back to bite me because I haven't thought far enough ahead and so I haven't planned in what's going to happen to certain people's children or, or nieces or nephews and things. And later on, they crop up and I'm thinking, oh, I never mentioned that they had a child because as a, as a novelist, you're always trying to make it as simple as possible for the reader, I think, in terms of not adding characters that are not really playing a, an active part. And so if a king, like King Oswy, has got multiple children all over the place, and I've mentioned a, a, some of them, but I haven't mentioned all of them because they don't play an active part in the story. But then later on, you suddenly realise, oh, but that daughter marries King, Offer, uh, king Pender's um, uh, son, and it becomes, she becomes an important, uh, an important figure. And and I suddenly think, oh my goodness! If, I if I'd mentioned them before, it'd be better. It's, it's easier to then bring them into the story later on. Um, so I sometimes get bitten by that. But basically, I read a bit a bit further forward for the details of the of the sort of the, the historical events that I'm going to wrap the story around. And then the um, and then what I do is I write. Then once I've got the basic plot, I'll write the story, trying to go, trying to stop as little as possible. So I don't go back and reread what I've written. I just keep going, keep ploughing through until I finish the first draft. When I get stuck on details, it's, it's the details that I need to go and investigate later on. So when I say, when I mean detail, I mean things like what type of wood was the tiller of a ship made of or something, some very specific thing that can obviously lead you down a huge rabbit hole of investigation. Um, or, you know, how did they make um, an earthenware pot or whatever, I don't know, or, or did they use nails for this or did they use 
wooden nails for such and such a thing or I know those type of detail what type of food were they going to eat at a banquet and those sort of things so those are things when I get to those points in a story I will just put some square brackets around and just say for example uh, you know uh, the character the characters ride into a town um, and beside the beside the path there were and I'll put in square brackets villagers doing farming things something like that and then I think right I'm not going to get bogged down now and research what they're farming at that specific time of the year in that place I'll go back and it doesn't matter at that point for the story it's not important but it is important for the reader later on to sort of cement them in the real world that, that the, the characters are living in so when I come back to a second part I'll search for all those um square brackets and and then i will and i'll then do the research for them and then fill in the gaps and so I'll, I'll look at all the specifics then so we've just been for a walk through bradford and avon and we're currently sat by uh, the river avon quite a nice little spot um and we've just been talking about something that we both have in common that I think we've just found out today, actually, uh, is Bambra, uh, where a lot of your books are based. It's quite a focal point for the for the, the series, I guess. Yeah, so Bambra and, um, of course, Bambra Castle is, um, is an, an impressive place. And it was the seat of the Northumbrian kings for many, many years, um, starting back at the beginning guess the beginning of the seventh century so the first of my book starts in 633 uh, it's already then the um, the seat of the venetian kings and i think probably around the turn of that century that they that, that became the seat of of the venetian kings and then later on i, I guess the northumbrian kings when venetia united with deira as well so you've got york would be the other capital i'm not really sure actually about the history i don't know if you know about any more than i do about the the long terms of the history of where whether the capital changed between Bambra and and York, but I think it's kind of it seems a bit fluid to me, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think York was um, at times the capital because it was seen as well. It's closer, yes, uh, to the seat of power, I guess, and closer to the south where the, the other kings were. Yeah, um, but Bambra was seen as because it was a fortress. It was so remote, yeah, uh, that nobody dared try to take it because they couldn't. So I think that was always seen as you can't take me here. I'm safe here. So I think the way, yeah, I think the way I've got it, in, I've sort of thought about it in the books is that Bambra is the the seat of the Venetian kings, mm-hmm. and that York is the seat of the Deiran kings. And of course, those two kingdoms join together to become Northumbria. Yeah. But I, I suppose what I've done is that depending on the house that's in ascendancy. So if it's Oswald's um, family, the, the the family of Ida. Then it's the Venetian kings that take precedence, and therefore Venetia has become the ascendant kingdom of the United Kingdom, and so of that United Kingdom of Northumbria, and therefore Bambra is kind of the the seat of power. Um, but at other times, if Deira became the ascendant kingdom, then perhaps uh, in the books they that could become the the seat of power. I think the only exception to that is the start of the very first book. I have Venetia as kind of being the the, 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 the uh, Bambra as being the seat of power, but really Edwin was the king at the time, and Edwin was Deiran, so possibly mm-hmm. it would have been more likely that he would have been staying at York, but um, Bambra's a more exciting place. So it what, was also the inspiration, really, for the, starting the writing the, the series, so so that's why I wanted to start the series at Bambra, and it's been important for the books. 
do you think because of where you grew up in Northumberland, Banborough was quite was always going to going to be pivotal in the way you wrote, or do you think it's just the draw of Banborough? I think it was pivotal because of the history, really. I think it's just because of the fact that when I found out, it's an impressive place. So I think it was always going to be important overlooking, you know, Lindisfarne. Um, I think in my mind, I've kind of conflated what Banborough looks like now with the ruins of Dunstanborough Castle, which is a little bit further down the coast, but it's very close on the coast, just, just down south of there. And it, there's cliffs. Um, although I think in the 6th and 7th century, I think Banborough did have steeper crags and the, the sea line has changed and the dunes have moved and everything's a little bit different. Mm. So I think it would have had a steeper drop into the sea. I kind of, in my mind, I've kind of pictured it a bit more like Dunstanborough. But to, in answer to your question, I think really the history has dictated the importance of Banborough to the storyline rather than Bambra making you know rather me want to write about Bambra and the, the other thing is that um I would say in answer to that question it's more the I'd say Norham which I've got as Ubbenford in the book so Norham where I was where I grew up for a few years where I lived for a few years I I actively chose to to make Beobrand live there in in the books so that was more of a case of me choosing a location based on my own knowledge of that place and decided to you know to have the characters be involved in, in that location but then also there's no real i don't think there's any evidence of anglo-saxons being there specifically but there is definitely evidence of romans being there and it was um, there's a norman castle so i've just really just sort of joined the dots in between and thought well if there was romans there and there was normans there then you know why wouldn't there be anglo-saxons there so i just decided the hall is kind of built where the norman castle is with with regards to archaeology and bambra do you draw upon archaeological evidence from not just Bambra, but I guess the surrounding area as well? Or is that, or does that not really play a factor into, into it? No, it definitely does. Uh, in fact, thinking about um, from Yeverin, I don't know, is it pronounced Yeverin, the, the place now? I pronounce it Yeverin. Okay, so Yeverin, which is in the books, and it um, was a royal vill, um, a royal steading, a royal settlement, um, very close to Bambra, just inland from, from Bambra. There's archaeology there that was undertaken by Hope Taylor. Taylor. yeah. And that definitely played into the books because his archaeology uncovered the sort of amphitheatre kind of structure that was there that they believe potentially Paulinus is where Paulinus preached um, when they had hundreds of people getting baptised in the beginning of Christianity at the time of the, the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, so definitely, there was, you know, I, I, I looked at the archaeology and used that and incorporated that into the stories. When it comes to Bamber itself, um, I could think of the one example specifically, the archaeology of the discovery of a fire around St. Oswald's Gate, or Oswald's Gate, I don't know if it's St. Oswald's or just Oswald's Gate, Bamber. I've incorporated into Fortress of Fury, which is book seven in the series, where there's in, I think, Bede Chronicles... Pender attacking and besieging the castle of Bambra and trying to burn it down. And then the wind changes because they pray and because um, Aidan prays and the wind changes and it basically saves the day. So I've incorporated that into the story, but there's actually archaeological, archaeological evidence of a terrible fire at about the uh, 7th century, which I thought, well, it could have just been a fire. It doesn't necessarily have to be that it was um, this fire that was that was lit by Pender, but it seemed to, to make sense from a, from a writer's perspective just to, to incorporate the two things. And going back to Yevrin, I remember 
but there's also archaeological evidence for a fire in early 7th century there. So that's actually the burning of Yevrin by Cadwallon um, is incorporated into the story based on that possibility that when Cadwallon won the Battle of Hatfield Chase, that he then pushed up and then destroyed some of the royal settlements, mm. um, which were then probably rebuilt. I think there's evidence for them being rebuilt later on, but they were destroyed by fire. Whether that was man-made destruction or whether it was an accident, we don't know, but the fire... You know, there is evidence definitely for this ash in the in the archaeological record. And I think it it shows the importance of not just the area, but of the, the kind of prestige of the fortifications and palaces that someone would come that far up to make such a statement to destroy it. Absolutely. But yeah, so having Pinder travelling all the way up from the Midlands um, and getting you know, getting all the way uh, up to besiege Bamborough Castle, I mean, it's quite a, quite a feat. So... It's always interesting from my perspective to write those sort of things into the story and work out the, the, the logistics of how to mobilise that many troops and get them you know, into enemy territory. Feed them as well. and Feed them, yeah. So I kind of, I tend to sort of gloss over it a little bit, and it all, but it all becomes a bit rushed. You know, they sort of have to get there and do their thing and then get off because I can't really see how they could survive for that long no. in the field. No, definitely not. And I think one of the things that we discussed slightly earlier, which I think we neither of us realised, was the connection that we both have to Bambra, some yes. things that I've physically excavated as an archaeologist, you have used or exca- or talked about in, in your book. So I excavated, I was part of the team that excavated the Ballhole Cemetery at Bambra Castle, and which is a big Christian burial ground outside the castle. And you mentioned that it became part of your book. Yeah, and it's, it's yes, so it's become part of a, of a few of the books because it's actually where, this is spoilers to anybody, but it's you know very early on in the first book, um, the Serpent Sword, that Beobrand's older brother, who was at Bambra before him, has been killed. And this is literally, you know this within like the first couple of chapters, so it's not a huge spoiler. But he's been buried in that burial ground. So Beobrand, the, the protagonist, goes and visits his grave in that first book. And later on, in subsequent books, a couple of times he visits there just to sort of, you know, to, to pay his a tribute to his brother. And um, I think it's in book, I think it's in the Fortress of Fury, in the, in the, in, one of the latest ones that he he's paid a mason to to actually leave a stone um, marker over his brother's grave and inscribe some some words in there. And those and that's again based on the archaeology of the fact that now at Lindisfarne Priory they've been unearthing lots of um, grave markers with names on and things. So I, so I've incorporated that in and the fact that he talks about that the mason that he employs to do this work is imported by Oswald to build a stone church for him because really lots of that technology or the, the know-how of how to cut stone and do these different things and do you know, create glass and, and all these different things had, had been just to a large extent lost after the after the roman empire and so I, I saw oswald as being obviously very rich powerful king he's sent off to to, to bring people from further afield to help build build stuff that, that is going to serve as his legacy you know to, to um, so he's, he's building this stone church, potentially with, with stained glass and stuff. But so Bear Brown has gone off to one of these masons at the weekend and said, you know, if I give you a few pennies, will you carve a, a stone plaque for my for my brother's grave? And obviously you know, they, they said yes, and, and they've done it, and that's it. So, you know, maybe one day they'll be um, excavating and find a, a grave, a gravestone and find out that actually it's true. And I've, I've, I dreamt it all. <laughs> And I was somehow there in a past life. So, yeah, this is something we talked about before, isn't it? Where we were walking about, you know, how, how you can find, feel a real connection to to a place mm. and how 
you can and whether you know people some people obviously do believe in in past lives and this is a past connection with a location um i'm not really sure if i do but it is true that when i go back to northumberland i do feel a very emotional connection with it yeah i know we we discussed it before but whenever i visit obviously i've been there many many times either through work or just out of personal curiosity but it always feels like almost feels like the first time again um so yeah it, it holds a very special place i think not just for me but for many many people and many people draw on it not just for inspiration but as well it's a gorgeous part of the world and you can imagine anything there almost the beaches are being uh, so pristine and white that it's almost like being abroad i mean apart from the temperature obviously but because <laughs> it's quite cold at times um but it is just an amazing part of the world and you have to put yourself in go back in time almost and imagine what they must have been feeling about about that as well and I, I, yeah i mean you you mentioned to me before i think off when we weren't recording maybe we can talk about a bit now that about the um about your experiences of working one of your first jobs was excavating that cemetery in in bambra and uh, you know i mean obviously it's it's amazing for me to to speak to you and realize that what is really the inspiration for me to write the whole series of books that's basically given me a living as a writer um, you were there on the site digging up those remains that then prompted me to investigate and, and write these books. I mean, how did you feel doing that, that first job as an archaeologist? Uh, I think it, it sounds strange, but unprepared almost. I, ha- I hadn't been anywhere near human remains before. Privileged as well, I guess, as a, a young 20-something. seems like such a long time ago to work on that and then realising, maybe not realising at the time, the magnitude of what I was actually doing and only further down the line, when I speak to someone like yourself or when you speak to people who have heard about it, it's such a rare snapshot into into that world. It's stuff that people write about that I actually got to excavate and handle and be part of. Now those bones have been laid to rest, haven't they? After, after the archaeological, after the archaeological um, you know, studies of, of them, mm-hmm. um, they've now all been laid to rest. They're in the crypt at uh, St. Aidan's Church in Bambra, in Bambra Village. And the Bamber Research Project, uh, which I, who I worked with at the time, they still they still exist. They're still going. They're still excavating up at Bamber. I still get updates on this. Yeah, it, it's amazing stuff that they do. So anyone that gets a chance can go and actually take part in these excavations. Yeah. Still. So the Bamber Research Project were the people that um, had written up this find of the of the ash layer of the burning of the wall near um, Oswald's Gate mm-hmm. in Bamber Castle. So I think that was like twenty. 13 or something so it was you know, relatively recently in, in an archaeological it's very recently that they no. um, that they that they wrote this that they wrote this stuff up yeah so there's always new things being found and that's one of the exciting things for me about archaeology is that i might only i might only dip in to very uh, very superficially don't mm-hmm. understand it in great detail i don't go into you know to understanding all of the details but it's getting this sort of little snapshot of something about history like i said you know i mentioned before just seeing from the um, from the, the the digs in, in um, on Linda's farm, and they unearthed some gravestones with women's names on, and so just just that from the Anglo-Saxon period, which just straight away makes me think, okay, so there are women there at the priory as well, and so it's a it, you, you, we we you knew that, but at the same time, you suddenly get some evidence for there were women being buried of enough status that they got their name. So then. Is it you know was the priory a mixed priory or mixed um, you know mixed monastery or mixed minster or or what we don't I, you know I don't know I haven't investigated to that level but these moments that sort of just just give me a moment of, 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 of an, in, 
an insight into into a world that you think, okay, I can pull that out and I can use that now and I can use it with some some basis of fact. So, you know, then you say there's a woman involved in the new, in the latest book they've had out, it's a new series, A, a Time for Swords. Uh, there's a plug there. So, in, in A Time for Swords, I'll repeat it. Um, <laughs> they, uh, you know, they're, they're, I've got the lay people of the monastery. So, I've got the monastery being men um, and monks, but uh, there are lay people nearby in a, in a village that are serving the uh, the, the, the monastery um, that are there at the time of the attack from the, the, the first Viking raid on, on Lindisfarne, or the first recorded Viking raid, can I say, on Lindisfarne. And so I can suddenly think, well, okay, I can I can put women in that context and know categorically that there were women there, whether they were nuns or, or lay people. I don't know, but we do know there were women there. What you're just talking about, almost bringing the past the past to life, whether you write it in, whether you know it's a hundred percent made up or whether it's a hundred percent assumption. Without that yeah. basis of archaeology, you wouldn't have that spine to stick it to. And I think that's that's it's huge. And I think what they do up there uh, as part of the project is people who may not be archaeologists or just may have a passing interest get the opportunity to actually be there. My, I took my eldest son two years ago when he was eight. And he was excavating inside Bamborough Castle. And that's something that he'll always, hopefully, always remember, you know. And that, to me, combined with the, the stuff that you write, it, it makes it real for not just archaeologists, but for the general public as well. And that's more of what we need to head towards, I think. Engagement. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because archaeology on its own, unlikely to attract. You're only going to attract a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. you attract a certain type of mindset or a certain way of looking at the world yeah way of analyzing the world when i suppose in a different medium like potentially you know writing novels like like mine like mine or in tv series or you know documentaries as well you you can reach a much broader audience and, and and not only through that specific way of looking at the world but through a much, a much broader um spectrum of, of of ideas and ways of portraying things mm. and so you know, hopefully, in my in my books, they're entertaining and they they bring some of that to life. Would you say? Well, there's between three and four thousand professional archaeologists in the UK. It's not a lot in the slightest. Yeah. And if you think that those published those published pieces of work and journal articles, because of the way they're written, it's a technical it's a technical subject. It often stays within that same community, um, and it needs the kind of it needs to go out to, to a wider audience. Um, three to four thousand people out of a population of nearly seventy million. Yeah. It, it's not a lot. It's great, isn't it? It's not yeah. great, and most people's exposure to archaeology and history is things like Time Team or a documentary they've seen. Yeah. Whereas they think that it's not for them, perhaps. Yeah. Whereas in reality, they can actually physically go and do it themselves. If, if, but that needs to be advertised, I think. And I'm not from a background where it was, you know, it, it wasn't an elite background. So for me, I always thought it was a privilege at the start to. Be an archaeologist and be involved in it, um, which I do now. Still think that, but I'm trying to get younger people involved and interested. And you know, it's it's difficult with my own children to get them interested sometimes. And they're, they're my kids, so there has to be ways to engage people. And if it means writing books that may not be 100 percent the truth, well, so be it. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I absolutely say that that my novels are absolutely not the truth, and I would, you know, I would. I don't think they're they're true, um, but you know I do the best I can to portray something that could be true. Mm-hmm. I think that's the important thing. I think it's that authenticity, and I always think authenticity over 
accuracy because I, we don't know. We, 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 there's so many things that we don't know, so we can't really pinpoint what is true and what you know what really happened unless we can sort of open that door into the past and just say, okay, we know we have these bare bones of knowledge of, of these events and these things, and we have as much archaeology as we've got, and then based on that, build an interesting story. But storytelling is definitely a different thing than archaeology. Although Sometimes. I wonder, yeah, I wonder how much archaeologists tell the stories. But, um, we, we do. We interpret what we see, and we each tell our own story. There's the, the facts, there's the, the stuff that comes out of the ground, and we take that and create a narrative, which is effectively a story. That can be subjective a lot of the time, and we always add our own bias into it. Yes, I find that really interesting because I think we were talking before and you said that archaeology is a science, but then surely in science nothing should be subjective. Mm -hmm. But then it seems to be very subjective to me because like we were talking about before, I think we weren't on, I don't think we were recording, but talking about finds being described as ritual deposits or unknown deposits or whatever, and, and, and you know, someone else would look at it and have a totally different perception of it or interpretation and think, well, that's not ritual, that's just people throwing some rubbish away, uh-huh. or this isn't unknown, you know, I can understand what that is, that's actually a, a pit where they would have been cooking from. Says, yeah, but there's no bones there, no, because the bones are there, because they took the food out, they ate it and threw the bones somewhere else, you know, yeah. so so there's, it's interesting to see that at some point somebody's interpreting those things, uh-huh. and that interpretation, yeah, as you say, is effectively you're creating a narrative, so, you know, is archaeology a science? I mean, that's a, that's a question. It involves science. Obviously, obviously, yeah. <laughs> is it a science or is it something else? I think else? I'll say yes only because my career depends on it, uh, my reputation perhaps. But it, on its own, potentially not. We we do bring in a lot of science to, to prove or disprove theories, but that costs money and sometimes that money isn't available. So we often end up with a story that isn't complete or is subjective. And that's often where the problem lies, not just for me, but for many archaeologists. You can make up any theory you want, but if you haven't got the money to prove or disprove. But really, I mean, I suppose taking it sort of full circle back to the sort of writing, that the um, the gaps and the lack of absolute clarity or knowledge is where you've got the moments that are available to write stories about. That must be perfect. So it's perfect for you. For me. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Those gaps we can't fill it. If you, if you had all the gaps filled in, it would be yeah. um, it would be a much more difficult thing. And it's one of the reasons why I'm shying away from writing books set in a later time period because i think those gaps are filled in to a large extent so you have to you have to really 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 know your stuff because otherwise someone's going to say actually i know that's not true because in the newspaper that was published on that day in 1853 the weather wasn't like that or you know so you're going to need to and, and i know that i'm anal enough that i wouldn't be able to live with myself and not research all of that stuff and so in the end i don't know if i'd ever managed to write, never write a book i never finished the book <laughs> it'd just be a, a research document i think yeah. Yeah. i've got book eight of the benicia chronicles coming out which is called for lord and land Incidentally, for anybody who's been following the series, you'll notice that each of the book covers or the book titles, sorry, is um, is alliterative as a sort of a nod to the Anglo-Saxon poetry. So you have the serpent sword, the cross and the curse, blood and blade, and now um, for lord and land, where this is a rod for my own back, which I now need to try to think of alliterative <laughs> titles for each book that comes out. 
which sound good and actually make sense um, and have something to do with the with the story. But yeah, so Forlorden Land um, is the latest one, and it follows. It continues to follow the adventures of Beobrand, which isn't a surprise. But I've got a bit of a a split narrative going on where Kunan or Kunan, I don't know how you pronounce his name, which I should do, but um, he's the the Welshman or the Wallish warrior that is his sort of right hand man has his own storyline as well in this where someone from his past returns and ignites um, a quest. So Beobrand is involved in, uh, in on one hand with the machinations of King Oswy. Um, yes, against um, Oswin of um, Deira. There's a civil war going on between Deira and um, Benicia, and Beobrand is kind of involved in all of that. Um, so there's all stuff going on there, and it's building up to a sort of final confrontation between the two kings of, North, of, of Northumbria. So that's kind of the historical part of it. That's what's happening from the history, and anyone who knows the history will know what the outcome is of that um, between Oswy and Oswin and what happens there, but I'm not going to give it away. But, you know, it's all available because it happened back in the 7th century. But in the meantime, um, you've got this uh, the, the Welsh character, Kunan, who's gone off to um, Reged, um, which is like the Lake District, Cumbria, and he's, uh, yeah, he's been called there to, to help out an old friend, um, and he's kind of got his... Um, little quest that goes on and towards the end of the book the, the two characters come together and there's something else that um that that i mentioned to you earlier but off i was gonna say off camera but off of off of the recording um that um, there's a new with each book i try to do something a bit different so this time i've got this split narrative but also um i've brought in um a new historical character that has a point of view within the book so there's multiple characters multiple point of view characters and um, a new historical character that's entered Beobrand's war band as uh, the youngest member of his war band is um, a Cuthbert someone called Cuthbert who you might imagine um, after being a warrior for a few years or a few months with Beobrand perhaps changes his um, vocation and um, and and doesn't continue the warrior life um as we are in Northumberland in the 7th century, and someone called Cuthbert may be known to people. Um, but I won't, I won't go <laughs> into any more... Yeah, a little bit of spoiler. So I won't go into any more details there, but Cuthbert is involved, and he's a warrior. So so that's it. And so, yeah, so for Lord and Land, yeah, and there should be more books in the series afterwards, so I'll be, there'll be probably another three or four, I think, before the end of the series um, that I can already sort of think of you know, in a vague sort of idea mm-hmm. but um yeah that's where i am at the moment and at the moment at this very moment i'm writing the sequel to um a night of a night for sword i'm oh, sorry a day for swords a time for swords even is actually the title um and i'm writing that that book is called a night of flames and that's the sequel of that and that's set in the the early viking age so the late 8th century so slightly different time period and um having to as i said before having to research all about Norway and the um, the the petty kingdoms of Norway and how uh, how they interacted with the rest of with the rest of the world and um, in later books in that series I'm going to be traveling all over the known world so I'm going to have to investigate about Constantinople and Rome and northern Africa and you'd have to go on a few trips Spain yes maybe you never know (laughs) if Covid ever 
goes away... It's a perfect excuse to go travelling. Then perhaps I'll be able to go <laughs> travelling and say it's tax deductible. You never know. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been great great to meet you as well. Oh, it's been great talking to you. And um, thank you so much for a lovely day. It's been really, really fun chatting and showing you around Bradford and Avon and talking all about books and history and archaeology. And um, good luck to the podcast. I'm, I'm hoping to listen to many more. Thank you.